Welcome to the Self Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Uh, we, yeah, pray that you connect with what's going on here. I am still learning to live uh, amongst you. Uh, I'm an Englishman living in America, and that's one challenge. And then I'm also a non-Coloradan living amongst you Coloradans. Uh, and so there's things that are just normal to you that I think are not normal. So to me, the fact that you can have a day like Friday with its 60 degree weather and its joy and I was wearing sandals and yet you can still have sheet ice on your front doorstep <laughs> is a unique challenge. And maybe if you've lived here all your life, you aren't aware of how unique it is. But most places that doesn't happen. Uh, so, but... You guys rock it out. You're wonderful. So we're in this series on Ruth. Today we will be doing communion at the end of the, se- the sermon. Uh, so we're going to bring you down to the front. We're doing everything we can to keep the, the safety for COVID and everything. So if you're a little nervous about coming down to the front, just wait until most people have come and then come and grab the elements. But it's an important part of how we're going to process the sermon together, making a movement towards those elements. So we'd love to invite you to participate. If you're watching at home, you can go back, you can uh, grab those elements, and I'll give you, you know, a couple of seconds to do that. Good. Now you've got your elements, we're all set to go. So last week, we, began, we, we stepped into week two of this series, and Aaron just led us wonderfully through this first part of chapter one, centered around this question. What do you do when your life falls apart? Now, what I will say is this, he did wonderfully for about 35 minutes of the sermon, and then he just whined about the passage that he'd been assigned for the other five minutes, which is fine. Sometimes we just have to clear up some behind-the-scenes stuff. And what I said to him was, was this. I understand talking about grief is hard, and it was a difficult passage. But I worked for this wonderful lead pastor once, and, and he came to me, and he said this. So we're doing a series on relationships, and, and at some point during this series, we need to talk about sex. And, well, the old lead pastor, he didn't like talking about that stuff, so he always made me do it. <laughs> and now he's gone, and I'm the lead pastor. And you're here. And so, and he just left me to catch the implication of what he was saying. So I just said to Aaron, it could have been way worse than talking about grief. There's a whole other realm of things you could have been talking about. But it was this wonderful conversation, like, what, what do you do when your life falls apart? And it was rich, and it was deep, and it was, it was challenging. And we got this sense of this character that we've been introduced to, Naomi, who has been through incredible grief. She has lost so much we read this story about how she, she has now heard that God has come to the aid of his people in Moab, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. There is bread again in this place that was known for providing bread. Bethlehem literally means house of bread. There had always been bread in Bethlehem, and now it's returned. There is now this new life that has been brought in, and, and things are now good again. And yet, after everything that Naomi has been through, she has questions. Am I still included in this goodness? She left, maybe not out of her own choice, maybe it was her husband's choice, but she has moved away, and God showed himself to be faithful to the people that stayed. These people that stayed were rewarded with bread, and now she is hungry. And so this question just lurks, like, am I still included in this promise? What about me? 
This is how she articulates what she's feeling like. No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. This is what lament is. She has this feeling of God, God, has, God has let me down. God is now against me. God is for someone. He is for his people back in Bethlehem. But for me, it feels like God is against me. And I'm not sure that I'm still involved in the story. Now, interestingly, some of the people that have studied this book in depth have suggested that it was written, maybe it's an older oral tradition story, but it was written during a time where this group of people, uh, is, these, these Israelites, are now coming back to their homeland. Now, for, for them, there's the same question that comes into play. Like, are we still included in God's people? We're the ones that stayed maybe longer than we should in this foreign land. Now we're trying to come home. Is God still on our side? That's what lament is. It includes all of those different articulations. Look at some of these passages. We talked on the first week about how Naomi is really a story like it's Job's story in female form. And this is what Job says. All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. His archers surround me without pity. He pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground again and again. He bursts upon me. He rushes at me like a warrior. Now, I'm not saying that this is accurate, but what I'm saying is this is how Job feels in this moment. Everything has gone wrong, and God may be for someone, but he is not for me. We sang that song earlier on, The Battle Belongs, and we talked about if, if you are for me, who can be against me? And, and for these people, the articulation is, well, God is very clearly against me. My life is falling apart, and somewhere it feels like God is involved. Maybe not to blame, maybe I'm not to blame, but I feel out of place. How about this one from Lamentations chapter 5? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. It all hinges around that unless word, right? We'd like to be restored. We'd like to believe good things can happen. But maybe the reality is it's just too late. Maybe there is no redemption of this story. These are the genuine emotions that come out in time of lament. There's this wonderful movie that some of you may have seen, The Count of Monte Cristo. It came out in 2002, and I loved this movie when it first came out until I read the book and found that the ending is just wildly different because Hollywood cannot handle anything other than redemption stories. Everything has to end well in Hollywood. So in Hollywood, these two characters, Edmond, the Count, and Mercedes, his long-lost love, they have to end up together. The story has to be redeemed. They fell in love, they were split apart for years, and everything comes back, and they still look as young and beautiful as they were when they split up the first time, even though it's 20 years later or so, because that's how Hollywood works, and everything's fine. But the writer of The Count of Monte Cristo, Alexandre Dumas, is a little more cynical than Hollywood, because in his book, they don't end up together. In his book, which is primarily, it seems, about justice, the ending is different. It's good for Edmond, but not for Mercedes. And this is how she articulates, exactly like Naomi, how she is feeling. Misfortune has silvered my hair. My eyes have shed so many tears that they are encircled by a rim of purple. My brow is wrinkled. You, Edmond, on the contrary, you are still young, handsome, dignified. It is because you have had faith, because you have had strength, because you have had trust in God, and God has sustained you. But as for me, I have been a coward. 
I have denied God and he has abandoned me. That's the articulation of Naomi, right? God has left me. His archers surround me. All of those different pieces of language. To her, she feels like my life has fallen apart and God has no interest in redeeming it. So to answer the question, what do you do when your life falls apart? For some reason still for Naomi, the answer is you go home. There's this wonderful little Welsh word that I skipped over we'll go back to. Uh, here it is. It's chireth. Now, I have an uncommon English tongue, so that means a common English tongue, which means that I can't say this properly. If you're Welsh or know anyone Welsh, you'd know that the, the if it sounds like you're hacking stuff up, you're doing it right. Good job. That's exactly how Welsh should sound. Uh, and so chireth cannot be translated. It doesn't have a version in English. The best we can get to is something like this. It's a, it's a homesickness for a home to which you cannot return. A home which maybe never was. The nostalgia, the yearning, the grief of the lost places of your past. When I was putting this together, as I looked at this word, I started to go back and look at some of the places I'd done vacation as a kid. And I found these little sort of country lanes that we'd stayed on, and I found the entrances on Google Maps to little places, little woodlands that we'd walked in and streams that we'd played with the dogs in. And I could almost smell the raspberries that used to grow in the bushes as we walked. I could almost see my siblings as young children running around and the chaos that was involved. And it creates this deep longing for, I would love to go back just for a few moments and just observe and feel all of those different things. And most of you probably have a place like that. And even though it's gone, the thought of it, the remembrance of it, is still somewhat comforting, right? There's an enjoyment in it. And for Naomi, even in the moment of my life has fallen apart, even in the moment of I don't know if there's a future, she chooses to go home. She chooses to go home. Now, second question though is, is this what Ruth's story is about? Because we're now about to introduce Ruth. We know that somehow she's going to be the heroine of the story because, well, the book is named after her. It kind of gives it away. And, and, and so her question isn't the same as Naomi's. Her question, I don't think, is what do you do when your life falls apart? I think her question is, what do you do when your life has never really come together? Because there's the grief when everything goes wrong. There's the grief of like loss and all those type of things. But then there's that hidden grief of, for some reason, my life has never quite made the sense that I hoped it would make. I had all of these hopes, all of these dreams that it would go in this particular direction, and it never quite got there. I had the dreams of, of maybe getting married, of child a birth of all those different things, maybe having grandkids, and it didn't happen. I had the dream of dot, 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 you fill in the blank. For some of us, it's not that we lost everything. It's that we never quite had it. I had a friend, I call him a friend, but acquaintance would be truer because I haven't spoken to him for years and he still lives in England, but we know each other at least. And he said to me once, he said, everything's come so easy to you. I don't think he was particularly right, but that was his observation. And then he said, but... But for me, it's been a constant struggle. It's been constant effort, constant work to try and get somewhere and make something happen. And I think Ruth's story is characterized in that way. We tend to observe people, right? And we see some people that we think have it all together. And then we observe some people and we think, well, well do you? We're not quite sure. Our community lost someone this week. Some of you may know about it, but... 
our friend Neil Cresswell went to be with Jesus. Neil is someone I only got to spend a couple of days with, just hanging out at his house, but he has this distinction. He and Anne, at 93, were the first people to take me off-roading in Colorado, which is an incredibly impressive thing. I was expecting some of the 20-year-olds to step up and everything, but no, it was Neil and Anne that said, we're going to drive to the top of the mountain, we're going to go off. To be fair, their housekeeper drove for them, but it was still an impressive feat. And in talking with Neil, I just got this sense of a man whose life had been lived centered around Jesus. And there's this loss, this sense of heartbreak for Anne and the family. There's this loss for us. And I would love you guys who are new to South to just know how incredible some of the people you do community with, even if you've just never quite been aware of it, because there are some people here that just have lived these lives that are rich in faith and rich in in experience. And and there's some of them still around, and so get to know them because they won't be here forever. And there's something about their lives that we just have to capture. And to me, to spend just this couple of days with Neil was just so life-giving. And so rewarding. And I got to see a picture of someone that had had their life shaped around Jesus and family and and the joy and reward that that brought. But then we see other cases where we're like, well, that isn't as true. And I wonder if Ruth is someone who just feels that way. Let's look back and I know we're only six verses in or whatever, but we will get through the story eventually. We're going to we're going to get through. We've got Lent, Easter's coming. We're going to make it. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth. To begin with, Ruth is an afterthought. But think about what that verse we've just read means. Ruth marries a man who is the son of someone who's a bread immigrant. He's just come looking for food. He's a refugee. And yet, somehow... The assumption has been, he's worth marrying my daughter. I don't think Ruth is valued very highly by her family. I don't think she comes from wealth. I think she comes from poverty. I think her story is is one of tragedy. She's married off to the first guy that comes into town with sons. There's no joy in that story. There's no life in that story. And then think about what happens later. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. Ruth loses her husband, and there's no mention of kids. Ten years of no children appearing. In the eastern climate, that would have been a tragedy in itself. Ruth's story is one of, it hasn't come together quite in the way that I imagined. And and if that's you, that's not a criticism of you and your story. That's a, a recognition of that that is a grief as well. We see the grief of those that have lost. We feel for Anne and her family in this time losing Neil. But we miss the grief of people who feel that sense of God never quite gave me what I hoped he would. It's not that your glass half empty instead of glass half full. It's that you have this emotional feeling of my glass never seemed quite like it got filled up in the way that other people's did. In my friend's articulation, everything's come so easy for you. To me, it's always felt like I've constantly been striving after something else. This is who Ruth is. The tragedy isn't, I've lost everything, it's fallen apart. If there's a tragedy, it's it's never quite come together for me. And this is the moment that we left them last week where she's deciding what to do. And Naomi says, go home, go back to where you belong. Stay in Moab. At least you have family there. Maybe your story can be recreated. Maybe there can be a new story that comes out for you. And this is the response. At this, they wept aloud again. 
Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi will try one more time. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Naomi has lived Ruth's story in reverse. She knows just how bad life can be as an immigrant, as a refugee. She knows what she is walking into. And her push is, Ruth, don't do this to yourself. Think about the journey that they have to make to start with. I sketched it out in Colorado terms so you guys could follow along. It's about 50 miles from Moab back to Bethlehem. And 50 miles back 3,000 years ago, you may as well times it by 100. It was such a huge distance. You just wouldn't cover it. News just didn't travel across that kind of distance. Naomi is going back to who knows what. She doesn't know what her family life will look like. Was, is there anyone that she knows still alive? Is the house she lived in still standing? Are the neighbors the same? Who knows what she is going into? She has been the journey one way, and now she's going to make the journey back. And she knows for Ruth, this is not an easy journey. There's this fascinating road in North Carolina. It's called Lakeview Drive. They call it the road to nowhere. They started building it into the mountains years ago, and they got like six hours drive or something into the mountains, and then it just stops. That's the end of it. It doesn't go anywhere. There is no joy at the end of it. There's no life at the end of it. And I think it's a mental picture of what I think Naomi thinks Ruth is walking into. There is no good thing at the end of this road, Ruth. Don't follow this journey, Ruth. The best thing that will happen to you is that you'll decide it didn't work and you'll come back. But it probably ends worse than that. Naomi can't provide for herself and she certainly can't provide for Ruth. Naomi is going into life hopefully as someone that's coming back to a community she's known, but she has lived the life of a refugee. And now Ruth is walking the same journey she has walked. Naomi did it with no choice. Ruth is walking into it intentionally and with choice. And Naomi's push is, don't do it. Just go home. Live a better story. And Ruth's response is magical. She gives a response that she has no right to give. The Bible has a very specific view of Moabites. We've been told over and over again, just remember, Ruth is a Moabite. Don't expect too much of her. And she's going to make one of the great faith articulations of all time. In, in terms of, Bible la of Marvel language, she is this guy. This is Chris Evans before he was Chris Evans-ized or whatever, you know. He's, this is him when they reduce him down at the start of Captain America and he doesn't look like a hero. This is, this is the guy that shouldn't be the hero of the story. This is the guy that we can expect nothing of. This is the guy that tries really hard but will never achieve anything. This is who Ruth is in Bible terms. And Ruth is going to make an articulation that is so far beyond what she should be capable of. It's stunning. It's the whole center of this first chapter of the book. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. It's an incredible statement. It's the first time she uses this specifically Hebrew name for God. She uses this word Yahweh, 
which is translated Lord. Up until this point, she's talked about God. She's talked about your creator, the God you happen to worship. But, but now she's saying, in essence, I'm changing my faith. You are so important to me. Your journey is, I'm so attached to it. I'm going to give up my people. I'm going to give up my homeland. I'm going to give up any sense of like what that past is. I'm going to give up my religion. I'm tying myself completely to you and to your journey. And then she commits herself with this promise of, may, may God do bad things to me if I break this promise. She is in 110%. And so the question I have is, what leads her to make such an astonishing commitment? Yes, on the one hand, we know from last week, Aaron led us through this church. She obviously sees that Naomi is an incredible person. She has this deep value on her. But at this point, she's specifically disobeying Naomi. It's not love. It's not honor. She's going against everything Naomi is telling her to do. And she's adding the burden of Ruth is now another mouth to feed. Ruth is now another person that needs a bed to sleep in. She can only be a burden. She can't, in her mind, offer anything monetary-wise. She can't support Naomi in any other, any other way. She's going as a refugee. She'll be dependent on the kindness of others. And yet something leads her to say, I will stand with you. Naomi is what you might call like this marginalized person. She's a person that, that is on the, the, the cusp of disaster. And Ruth says, I'm going to stay with you. And this verse has stood out so much to people that it has birthed this incredible attitude towards people that are marginalized and broken and hurting and grieving. It's something that has gripped people in. 1944, the government of Sofia, Bulgaria, rounded up all the Jewish people and led them to a train station. They were planning on sending them on trains off to the death camps in Belsen and in Auschwitz. And the guards stood there at night, guarding them, waiting for the trains to arrive. And through the mist and the smoke and the vapor and the, the ambience, the magic or whatever you would call it of the train station, this figure emerges. It's this guy, Metropolit Kirill, one of the leaders of the Bulgarian church in Sofia. And he walks up towards the armed gates. He was about six foot six tall and then he wears this bishop's mitre on top so he looks like a giant and he appears through the smoke. And the guards say to him, you can't go in there. And he looks back at the people that have come with him, the church people, and the story goes that he laughs. He says, they say I can't go in there. And he pushes the guns aside and he climbs over the fence, walks into the train station. And he stands in the middle of this group of Jewish people, marginalized, broken, grieving, about to die. And he stands there and he says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I also will die. And there I will be buried. He makes this stand with this group of marginalized people based on something Ruth had done 3,000 years before. This verse, this speech has this magic that has just captured people's attention. The writer Shane Claiborne says this, As followers of Jesus, we pitch our tents with people of struggle. We pitch our tents with people of struggle. That's what Metropolit Kirill does. And that's what Ruth does. She stands with Naomi. Maybe she doesn't even know the reason, but something says to her, no, I'm going to stand with you and journey with you. Where you die, I will die. I am in this 100%. Something draws us, something beyond just, I like you, I respect you, you're my mother-in-law. Something bigger is pulling her into this story. 
And what we said in week one is Ruth is a, is a story of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. There is no supernatural in the story. God does very little on the surface. But what he does seem to do is work in the hearts and minds of people like Naomi and Ruth. There's something that is pulling Ruth into this story. When we talk about refugees, there's two bits of language that we use. We talk about what, what's pushing and what's pulling. So there's something that pushes a group of, of refugees to leave a country. Maybe it's war, maybe it's famine. There's something that says you need to go. But then there's the pull as well. Why are people pulled to specific locations? If you ask people worldwide, 23% of people would choose to go to the United States if they could choose any country. The nearest is the UK with 7%. So there's the push to get you out of your country, but the pull that says the US is the dream. We understand why Ruth may have a push to leave, but something is pulling her to go with Naomi. Something is pulling her into this bigger story. Her questions about what can my life look like? Can it ever be what I hoped? Something is pulling her into this story of God. And she, as we know, the end of the story will become a great, great, great grandmother of King David. Eventually she'll be some distant relation of Jesus himself. She's been pulled into this Jesus story even if she doesn't know it yet. This is just the beginning. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. Read, get the feel of that. That passage puts Naomi first constantly and her second constantly. It's all about, if it's good enough for you, it's good enough for me. I am in. I don't think Ruth knows what she's doing. I don't think she realizes the incredible faith step that she's making. And she certainly doesn't know where the story is going to go. And yet she chooses by some deep pull inside her to stand with this marginalized, broken, and grieving women. We pitch our tents with people of struggle. That is who we are. That is who Ruth was. That was who Metropolitan Kirill was. That is our calling. And then look at the response that she gets, because it's, it's, it's educational for us in terms of what it takes to walk with someone who is grieving. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. She didn't just stop urging her. She stopped talking to her as well. According to the narrator, Ruth, the, Naomi doesn't say another word in the entire journey back to Bethlehem. There's this journey that they go on that takes 55 miles. It's about seven to 10 days. And not for the rest of the journey does, does Naomi utter another word. Her gift back to Ruth is the gift of silence. Ruth is an irritation. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Imagine the entrance. We're told that the whole town comes out to watch this, these two women come in. And there's all these questions. Well, who is this? Who has come? Who's the stranger in town? In these small towns, you get that kind of attitude, right? We have some friends that live out on the west coast of Ireland. And we went over to see them. And they live in this tiny little place. Uh, apparently, you can write a letter to Jimmy at Jimmy's Cow Farm, Balanaslo Island. And it will get there. 
Because the, the postman knows Jimmy's cow farm and he knows Jimmy and it's just tiny. And we went to the pub with them the first night and this pub is half general store, half bar. And then if you want to watch a sporting event, you sit in their living room with their dogs and it's just tiny. And, and he said to us years ago when we went to visit, you know everyone will know who you are tomorrow. You're the strangers from out of town. They'll know exactly why you're here and who you are and all those different things. And, and the same is true in this culture. Back then, the, these two women arrive and then suddenly the rumor spreads, wait. Isn't that Naomi who left? Isn't that the one who went away to find bread and now she's come back again? And look at Naomi's articulation of what her journey has looked like. Don't call me Naomi, which means in Hebrew, pleasant. She told them, call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Look at what happens there and think about what it means to walk with someone who's in deep, deep grief, who maybe doesn't realize how much they're suffering. Ruth the Moabite makes this incredible promise. She says to Naomi, I will go where you go and I will die where you die. I'll even change my religion. I'll leave behind my family for you. And with her alongside, Naomi arrives and says, God has brought me back empty. I have nothing of value with me. To Naomi, Ruth is a zero in terms of value. She brings nothing to the table. She is worth nothing. She is extra baggage along for the journey. That's where we pause the story until we see the wonderful things that God will do in the lives of Ruth and Naomi over the next few weeks. But at this moment, they've arrived back in Bethlehem. The scene is set. And to Naomi, Ruth is just extra baggage on the journey. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. We looked in week one about this clown's idea, right? There's these moments where we're, we're given reassurance that the story will end well. It's a Shakespearean device, but it's an old ancient device as well. Good things happen in harvest season. Good things happen when the sun is out. This is this moment that we can expect the story will end well. God is working. The story has somewhere to go. But right now, it's two women who've arrived back in Bethlehem. One who has given everything for the other, and the other doesn't appreciate it at all. One of the interesting things about that road to nowhere that I mentioned earlier is some of the startling views that take place as you navigate it. Yes, it's a road to nowhere, but it brings incredible joy. I am intrigued by Ruth's decision to go on this journey. There's nothing to me that explains it theologically. There's nothing that explains it to me sort of academically. There's just something pulling her into this story. There's nothing obvious at the end of it, and yet she goes anyway. And yet, just like this road to nowhere, God will do magical things through her incredible promise. He is pulling her and Naomi back into his story with different questions. But their questions really have some of the same roots to them, right? Yes, Naomi is processing, am I still included in the story? Is there still, this story, is it still available to me? And, and Ruth is processing, is the story ever going to come to life? Is it ever going to be what I hoped it would be? And yet they're both being pulled back into God's story, which shapes over thousands of years, and that they'll both play incredibly significant parts. Ruth the Moabite, who can make this incredible articulation, will become 
uh, great, 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 great something of Jesus himself. Her part in the story is incredible. And the same is true for you and I. We are invited into this story. I love what happens when you take one story in the Bible and you put it alongside another. So think about the story that we're looking at right now and think about the famous story of the prodigal son that many of you will be familiar with. You can read it in Luke chapter 15, verse 11 to 31. It starts off with two sons, one of whom says to his father, give me my money. (laughs) I want to go. It's in Eastern language, I wish you were dead so I could get on with living my life. And he goes and he parties and he does all of those things and he gets left in a very similar situation to Naomi. He gets left asking the question, is there anything for me back at home? Does the story still apply to me? Is there still life at the end of this journey? And, and just on a whim almost, he makes the same decision Naomi does. The hireth, the whatever ever, ever it is, calls him back. He came to his senses and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. And this is the culmination. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Naomi and Ruth may have different fears and different tremblings about how welcome they are in the story, but but what this story does is it helps us articulate the fact that God is always excited and delighted when his children begin to come home. That call, that welcome is still there for each and every one of us. Come and be involved in this story. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up on stage. We're going to walk through this time of communion where I'm going to ask you to consciously think through some of those elements. Where are you in your grief journey if you're on one? Is it the grief of it's all fallen apart? Or is it that hidden grief of my life has never really made sense in the way that I hoped it would? Wherever you're on your journey, that's okay. But you are invited to walk stumbling steps back towards this father that you may feel very distant from. You're invited to know that you are loved. Maybe you're walking on that journey with someone and and where they are in their grief, they're unable to be thankful, unable to be grateful, and that is okay too. We pitch our tents with people of struggle. We pitch our tents with the marginalized, the broken, the hurting. Each one of us are walking, limping, stuttering steps towards this Father who loves us and values us. So as Aaron leads us, I'm going to invite you to come and get the elements and take them back to your chair. And then we're going to take them together uh, as he leads us, after he leads us in this song. Jesus, thank you that you are present with us in our grief, in our struggle, in the ways that we mirror Naomi, in the ways that we mirror Ruth. You give us this deep call to stand with people of struggle, to pitch our tents alongside them, to feel their pain. That's true of the individuals in our community that are grieving today. It's true of our homeless community that lives on our doorstep. It's true of the people, the immigrant refugee families that live in our wider area. Those that consider themselves outsiders, marginalized, unwanted, And you call us as you did Ruth thousands of years ago, as you did 
Metropolitan Kareel nearly a hundred years ago. You call us in this wonderful phrase to live out your story. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, there I also will die. Thank you for the joy of giving to your kingdom. Thank you for the way that you pull us into your big story, even if we're not aware of it. God, may you challenge us as individuals, as a community to live that story out well. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.